From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's get over to Washington, D.C. right now. A lot going on there uh, as the government, as the uh, as Congress, um, you know, runs uh, closer and closer to a shutdown. We have a serious upset, I would say, for Democrats in West Virginia. Nathan Dean joins us. He covers all things politics out of the Washington, D.C. Bureau. So, uh, Mr. Manchin is not running for re-election. What does this mean for the Senate, Nathan? Well, it, it means pretty much the Democrats have a really steep uphill battle to keep the Senate in the 2024 elections. Look, it was going to be a challenge to begin with, but with Senator Manchin announcing his re uh, retirement, uh, that essentially flips the state to the re to the Republicans. And so, uh, you know, this election is very bad for those members in the Senate. There aren't many Republicans out there running for re-election that the Democrats could potentially have a chance. And that actually could play into what the Democrats do for the rest of the year before the election. Uh, we may see them focus more on confirming judges and confirming appointments and trying to get a lot of the cleanup work that they can do when you control the Senate before, you know, they anticipate to lose it uh, in the 2024 election. I was actually I wanted to ask you about that, Nathan, because I think, you know, a lot of us know Joe Manchin to be, uh, I guess, a moderate Democrat is how he would describe himself. And on a lot of issues, probably leans a little bit more right than left. And would have thought maybe, you know, if the Democrats could hold on to that seat, that this would maybe be viewed more opportunistically, perhaps, if you could get somebody who's like a little bit more in line with the agenda that you're trying to push. Yeah, but I mean, you also have to answer the question of what would he do if he were to actually win re-election? I mean, then, you know, the makeup of the Senate could be if the Republicans were to take the Senate without Senator or with Senator Manchin there, you know, he would lose a lot of that power as being that one kingmaker individual that can sort of uh, go back and forth between the parties and try and appeal. So I think this is sort of also maybe, and this is just my own view, that maybe this is Senator Manchin trying to prepare for the future. You know, he made that statement yesterday on 
online how he wants to travel the country and see if there's a way to mobilize a centrist third party run. I don't think that's going to happen again. That's just my own personal view. Uh, so I, I just think that he saw the future and was like, you know what, maybe the future is better for me working outside of Congress than being inside, because uh, if the Republicans do take the Senate, you know, he may actually not may uh, not have all that much stuff to do. All right. Let's talk about the Congress here. Mike Johnson has, let's see, seven days left uh, before a government shutdown. Um, Does he have any plan to to stop that? So, you know, what we've just heard is, you know, there's really two options on the table. One is a clean continuing resolution. This other idea, and this is the one that I think he's going to go with initially, is this idea of a laddered continuing resolution so that he would extend funding for certain agencies to, say, January 15th, and then funding for other agencies to February 15th. So then you would have a rolling set of potential government shutdowns, depending on which agency you're impacted by. You know, we are actually telling our clients that we still think it's around a 40% chance of a shutdown next week. I know that doesn't sound like uh, in with in line with the uh, the news headlines that are coming out there. But, you know, there are just too many political cakes that are being baked around, you know, Ukraine, Israel, House GOP ideas, border security. And none of these ideas are actually close to fruition and they need more time for negotiation. And so ultimately, I think what will happen is, is that next week, Speaker Johnson will pursue this laddered CR. It won't go anywhere with the Senate. And, and then they'll entertain this idea of maybe kicking the can down the road another four weeks or eight weeks to give those ideas more time to fight or to uh to go uh to be closer to finalization and then kick the can on the bigger fight because there's really no strategy yet of why you would shut the government down most government shutdowns a party goes in there and says we will want we want to close the government and get this in return and that just doesn't exist so i think the republicans need a little bit more time to figure out what that is uh, and so I think ultimately they'll just kick the can down the road. Kick the can down the road. Isn't that the famous phrase of this whole exercise that we've been going through for, man, when was the first one now? Or the the potential one? Was it end of October? Oh, you mean in this, in this Congress? In this, oh, the, or the, the beginning of October, right? <laughs> right That's right, when yeah. that was potentially getting going. Yes, again. and we, the debt ceiling debate. Right. Okay. So we've kicked the can to now. Okay. Um, all right. Just had to catch up on the timeline there a little bit, Nathan. It's been a lot to keep track of. Um, when Mike Johnson emerged as the Speaker of the House, how, were any of these proposals on the table at the time? Did people potentially like catapult him into this position because they had confidence that he could avert a shutdown? No, I think it's just more of, look, they're, it, the way it works in Washington is, and this is my view is, is that it's almost like water taking the path of least resistance. You know, until they get backed into political walls, politicians on both sides of the aisle will try and figure out flexible ways of moving around. And I think that's what Speaker Johnson is trying to do here, is just trying to figure out a way to keep the momentum going without being backed into a political wall. And so, you know, obviously he's got members of his caucus that want him to you know, try and get all these policy goals. It will never happen if you have the Senate or, you know, the Democratic control. And obviously, President Biden would have to sign off on it. So the odds of all that happening are almost nil. So how do you get out of that? Well, you kick the can down the road and you say, you know what, rather than making the tough decision today, we're going to make the tough decision the next time. Now, I think Speaker Johnson has a mulligan here because this is the first time he's done this. And it was such a quick time between the election of his speakership to today. I think after he pursues this letter, CR, he can go to his caucus and say, look, we tried. There's still a lot of ideas out there that we, you know, we have some issues on border security that we're negotiating with the White House on. Let's just move this fight to either next year or later in December. 
and then we'll have our fight then. Uh, you know, the other thing to just point out is that, you know, the election that happened in Virginia and in Kentucky and so forth Ohio. wasn't exactly a good night for, uh, you know, and Ohio, you know, wasn't a good night for the Republicans. Why would you, if you're the party that's seen as shutting the government down, want to have two bad whammies over a series of two weeks? I think it's more sense to just kick the can again down the road. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe Johnson gets a mulligan, but the Republicans don't because they already kicked the can once and then fired McCarthy for it. He is the one who took us through the debt ceiling deal, in which was way back in May. So they've been, um, you know, kind of... St- stuttering and starting all year long without getting a lot done. By the way, speaking of getting little done, um, it seems in a recent poll that American voters are more concerned about border security than they are about, um, you know, Israel, Hamas and Ukraine, Russia. Um, What's the Biden administration going to do about it? I mean, they've arguably had years to deal with it and haven't. Yeah, you know, so obviously the Ukraine-Israel issue is something that's a little bit more bipartisan, at least in the Senate. Uh, And so I think they're going to be trying to work that out. You know, there are negotiations going on uh, in the Senate over border security. President Biden even just said a couple of days ago that they're open to it. You know, the the reason why I think he's saying they're open to it is this is one of those issues, like you pointed out, that, uh, you know, voters may not be too thrilled with his position going into an election year. So why wouldn't they do something? So, you know, but ultimately what we're telling our clients is if you look at what has to happen between now and the 2024 elections, once we get through this funding fight, there's really not a left a lot left on the table. The debt ceiling isn't all that much, you know, isn't there until after the election. So there's nothing really scary for markets outside of this geopolitical issues. Uh, So, you know, markets could have some clarity once this funding in Ukraine and Israel uh, issues goes through, uh, because 2024, a lot more focus is just going to be running for re-election. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure having you as always. Nathan Dean from Bloomberg Intelligence, where he is senior policy analyst for the U.S. government. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe Mick Mulroy knows. He's the co-founder of the Lobo Institute. We'd love to get his insight on uh, what's going on in geopolitics, especially in the Middle East, because he's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. But he um, is a... A Marine. What do, you don't say former Marine, do you, Mick? Isn't it once a Marine, always a Marine? That's right. The Commandant actually passed a rule that once a Marine is always a Marine. So we're just Marines. All right. Well, we thank you for your service and uh, congratulate you uh, and your your brothers and sisters on this, the 248th birthday of uh, the United States Marines. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I want to ask you um, about, first off, the, the situation in, in the Middle East and, and how it's developing now. Because, you know, on October 7th, I think um, liter- nearly everyone was, was uh, shocked and horrified by the attacks of Hamas on the Israeli people. Um, and it seems that 
many people since then or 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 the voices that support um uh, the Palestinian um, cause and even support Hamas have grown louder and louder. What do you think um, the national feeling is now about this Israeli-Palestinian um, war? Uh, so I I just simply don't understand the people who support Hamas. That would be the equivalent, at least the way I see it, is supporting ISIS, uh, essentially depraved terrorist organization. Now, um, being concerned about the Palestinian people, I think, is it's not only understandable, I think it should be uh, the case. So I think there is the balance because war is ugly, but um, it has to be fought uh, in within certain bounds. And we've set that internationally. And I do think, you know, it, everybody's jumped to the conclusion that the Israelis uh, perhaps went too far. I think that's to be determined. But certainly the level of civilian casualties is unacceptable. As Secretary Blinken said, I would share that. Uh, but now we're seeing a lot of things done to move civilians to the south to get out of the uh, the area of the most significant fighting, which is important. I think this should be set up a dead, uh, safe zone where people can receive food and water and they, it's monitored so that the Hamas fighters can't hide amongst those folks. But we're going to see an increasingly uh, violent fight in Gaza City. It's already started, but it's far from over. And that objective of the Israeli Defense Forces is to destroy Hamas. And that can only be done up close and personal. I do want to come back to uh, Secretary Blinken in a moment. But first, Mick, would love if you could tell us a bit more the perspective that you're coming at this from. I see that you were um, you worked at the Department of Defense. So you were um, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for the Middle East um, at the in the federal government. And now you're a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. Can you just tell us what that means and like what your role is right now? So I started for the most part as a practitioner of, uh, you know, uh, irregular warfare, warfare in general as a Marine and then as a well, it's called a paramilitary officer in the CIA, which is our version of the special operations uh, in the agency. So I spent most of my time in conflict zones, as did most of my colleagues. And I fought many times in urban environments. And it is the by far the worst. It's very disoriented. It's very violent. And it's you just never know what's coming at you. So that's that's what I brought into being a policy person uh, for Secretary Mattis and then Secretary Esper was mostly a practitioner's point of view. But then I got obviously schooled up pretty quick on policy. So I view it uh, from both lenses uh, when I look and analyze these type of uh, uh, conflicts. Thanks for that. Yeah, I think um, I was uh, definitely wanted to know a bit more about your background here. Very impressive. So you were also a former coach at USA Boxing um, in the Marines for a few <laughs> years. So very impressive pedigree. Um, and I wanted to echo Matt in thanking you for your service as well. A few years. Yeah. In the Marines from 1988 <laughs> to 2014. A, yeah, that's, that's more than a few. Yeah. So you certainly have a lot more to bring to the table than we do in this perspective. Um, so yeah, I did want to come back yeah, to Secretary Blinken's visit then and what you made of uh, his time in the Middle East and how his reaction was and where basically the U.S.'s role is in this conflict right now. So I think one of the roles that the U.S. is, is attempting to play is to talk about the day after. Uh, this is going to happen. I believe Hamas will be destroyed as they should be. But what's going to come next? A long-term occupation of the IDF of Gaza would be unacceptable to many. Uh, and it, I don't think it would be in their interest. So what's going to fill the gap? I think Secretary Blinken's been talking to all our partners in the region saying, you know, rhetorically, uh, you know, having opinions on this is 
fine, but what are we actually going to do? So is there going to be an international peacekeeping force? What's going to be the political way ahead uh, for the people in Gaza, the Palestinians? What are we going to do to make sure that this never happens again? Both for the sake of Israel, of course, and for the sake of the Palestinian people. And I think everything that I've seen Secretary Blinken saying uh, is indicating that that is really where he wants to focus this. How to how to reduce this human uh, tragedy that's happening in Gaza and eliminate Hamas, and also look at what's going to come next to make sure this this is the, it doesn't happen again. Now, Mick, a lot of people would say Israel has occupied Gaza for quite a long time. Uh, and, and continue to do to do so through uh, October 7th. They certainly have uh, occupied the West Bank in, in a uh, large part and haven't honored uh, any of the attempts at a two-state solution, not under Netanyahu, right? So is there any, any hope that they're going to do that now? Because everyone else in the world backs a two-state solution, even the countries like the U.S. that back Israel and send Israel billions of dollars every year, and yet the Israelis refuse to allow the Palestinians to have their own um, their own state. And the only way I could see this ever working, where you don't have this happen again and again, is a two state solution. Uh, they they have essentially, to your point, they have direct access into into the West Bank and therefore occupy it. They control in and out access in Gaza, they would say they didn't occupy it, which is one of the reasons why they didn't know what was going on. Well, they have on. settlements, they have checkpoints. They do. They absolutely do. Yes. I'm not I'm not uh, disagreeing with you, but the, they, they would say that they, they want to have troops on the ground now because they don't want Hamas to get reconstituted. I think that would be a, a bad idea. That's why I think uh, Secretary Blinken, State Department, the White House is rightfully talking about, well, what's the alternative? Is there a, is there a, uh, is there a caretaker type group, an international peacekeeping force that could stay there until the Palestinian people select a government that sets up its security, it sets up its its basic uh, life support. And then, of course, there, there should be large investments from a lot of the wealthy countries in the region and out of the region that help rebuild Gaza and, and turn it into a place that has a future, including an economic one. And I think that's what the U.S. is pushing now, and I think they should be, because this situation I don't see changing unless there is a two-state solution in which the, the international community is heavily involved in setting up. Are we losing sight of what's going on in Ukraine uh, through all this? Because if the Russians win there, you know, they're pushing up into NATO borders. They absolutely are. And the fight's still raging on in Ukraine, even though it's not uh, first thing on the news. It's still happening and they are making incremental gains. And it's really clear now that a lot of the weapon systems that we provided them recently, especially the attack on the long range uh, artillery system, is having a major effect on the Russians' ability to resupply uh, both its frontline troops and they can reach anywhere in Ukraine now with those systems. So there's no place off limits, including the Crimean Peninsula. So that is super important. It's also really important that we get more uh, funding to them to purchase and uh, buy ammunition, because as this gets into the winter, it's going to be somewhat of a war of attrition, particularly on the logistical side. And the U.S. needs to help them keep up with uh, a much larger, much uh, uh, broader enemy in Russia. All right, Mick, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, always love talking to you and uh, really appreciate, you know, your service. I think especially at times like this, we should all um, be thankful that that Marines like yourself and, and soldiers that defend the freedom of America are doing what they do so that we can sleep 
safely. Mick Mulroy there is co-founder of the Lobo Institute and a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Matt Miller here with Molly Smith and the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I want to bring in Margie Patel. She is a senior portfolio manager at Allspring Global Investments. And uh, we love to talk to her because she has a great view of the stock market and also of the bond market, right? She was twice nominated Morningstar's fixed income manager of the year. Yeah, that's right. And I, um, Margie, it's nice to talk to you again. Um, we used to talk when I covered the credit markets. I think you were back at Wells Fargo at the time. So good to see you. Well, let's ask, let's let's get your take on on what happened yesterday, Margie, and and uh, what we've seen in yields and how it's affecting stocks. I mean, after the auction, um, I mean, it didn't go wrong, but it didn't go great, right? Of uh, uh, yesterday, of, of the thirty years, um, we saw the yields um, spike up, and then the stock market sell off. I think Powell kind of confirmed um, what the market was thinking that maybe they're not quite done yet. How do you see it? Well, I think the Fed is saying a lot of different things because in their whole tightening program of the last year and a half, nothing has really played out the way they thought, according to their playbook, as far as raising rates. We haven't seen the economy slow down. We actually had a very nice quarter just reported. Uh, Probably thinking was we would have a recession, lower stock prices, and that really hasn't worked out. So I think the Fed is a little bit flummoxed because what they thought would happen just hasn't happened. And I think it shows you that the economy really isn't that sensitive to what the Fed has done with interest rates. Well, I think that was also a big point of what Powell was saying yesterday that he had mentioned, you know, there are so many people right now in the U.S. that are just so more or less interest rate agnostic, especially if you're a homeowner who's already locked in a mortgage rate under 4% or so. So that was definitely part of what he mentioned. And I think otherwise, I mean, my take on what he said yesterday, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. It seemed like he just kind of like flipped the script a little bit on what he had said at last week's meeting. But last week's meeting was more, we're probably done, but we could hike again. And yesterday was more, we could hike again, but we're probably done. Well, I think he's just trying to uh, cover cover a broad spoke of what they might do. Um, and, and really, the market isn't giving them the guidance that they wanted. So I think that's why they, they sort of sound as if they're all over the map about, well, maybe we'll do more, maybe we're done, maybe we're not. And that really reflects the fact that their playbook hasn't worked out. <clears throat> the economy is too strong and inflation has come down, uh, maybe more than they expected. The economy has been stronger than they expected. And uh, so we haven't really seen much happen and we haven't had interest rates really break out. Yesterday rates were up, today they're down. And you can see the market is is just not taking, um, you might say, all that talk seriously. So we still have a very good stock market. And I think that's what we're going to see for the rest of the year. So what about the Fed and um, its fight against inflation? You know, I've heard uh, an interesting thesis in the last couple of days that we were um, dealing with inflation that had a 2% ceiling, and now we're looking at an inflation environment with a 2% floor. Um, of course, we're not near that floor yet. If you take, um, if you're looking at any of the data that the Fed looks at, um, how do you view the fight against inflation? 
Well, <clears throat> honestly, looking at the inflation data you've seen, which basically we had some short-term things from COVID, uh, supply glitches, uh, but really, I can't see much connection between what the Fed has done and what's happened to inflation. Inflation went up as they began to tighten. It's come down. And if you look at the factors that have caused inflation to come down, I can't see very much of a connection with the Fed's activities. So I think it's uh, the economy is going on. The Fed is doing their thing of raising rates. And it's almost as if it's a, a random effect on the economy, maybe a slight negative because there's a little uncertainty. What well, but that sounds, like, that sounds like bad news uh, ready to happen because the Fed has raised rates 550 basis points. And I guess, you know, those long and variable lags are starting to hit home. Um, right as inflation is coming down, I guess, fortunately, but uh, aren't we going to see a slowdown in the economy? Well, we really haven't seen it yet. And uh, we've had an economy that looks okay. And it looks like the fourth quarter is going to be modestly positive again. And so I think if you had asked the Fed where you think the economy would be, I think they were looking for unemployment to have jumped up by several million people, uh, not to be where it is, you know, the one to four percent. So they, that, that was their whole key in bringing down inflation. So we've had very low unemployment rates, yet we've had inflation come down. So I just conclude other factors in the world have pulled inflation down. The basic strength of the U.S. economy is in that sense of interest rates because business and consumers have taken out long-term fixed rate loans, and so they aren't sensitive. And so the Fed is really just uh, almost a, a bystander to uh, what's happening in the real economy. Couldn't you say uh, that? I would Fighting the inflation, I don't see what they've done to fight it. I think they just have sort of hoped if they raised short rates, inflation would come down. It's come down not because of short rates, but all these other factors that have come in in the marketplace. Well, couldn't you say then, Margie, it sounds like some of the things that you've just mentioned right here between like the consumers still staying pretty strong, like inflation is coming down, granted not as fast as we might hope, economy is still doing okay. Couldn't you say that that's maybe the making of a soft landing? Is that how you're positioning this right now? Well, I think it looks like the economy, I don't see anything uh, way out of kilter that would precipitate a recession. Uh, people have been looking for recession for a long time. It hasn't come. I do think, though, that uh, we've had a huge lift of the economy that's come from federal spending. Uh, we had the COVID money, which is still out there being dispersed, being dispensed right now. We've had a big increase in state and local government spending. And so I think that's added a little floor to what we may have seen growth come down. So as we get into 24, we may see the economy decelerate a little bit because some of these money flows, particularly the leftover COVID money that's been really a big boost for consumers, um, may stop and that may cause the economy to slow down a little. But I just don't see a recession in the cards even for 24. Margie, great to get your take. Thanks so much for joining us. Margie Patel there. She's a senior portfolio manager at Allspring Global Investments, and she does not see a recession um, on the horizon, even if the economy um, will slow down in 2024. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. 
catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We welcome now our TV and radio listeners, our TV audience and radio listeners. Um, We need to talk about what's happening in the EV space. EV maker Polestar, fresh off its investor day, a day that showcased its business strategy and future EV prototypes. We now welcome Thomas Ingelath, Polestar CEO and Bloomberg's resident. It says gearhead, but but electric cars don't have gears. So we'll maybe park that, that name for now. But Matt Miller joins us. Thomas, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. What's the message that you are sending to investors? What do you want to convey about where this business goes next? Yeah, good morning, Guy. Hi, Matt. Well, our message here from our poster day, how we call it here in LA, uh, it's, 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 I think, a very positive, good one. We have um, two major parts here. One, of course, the great news about the product rollout and the other part about what work we have done over the last summer about uh, the business plan. Obviously, um, making that a strong, resilient business plan, which means clear view on the break-even, cash flow break-even, 2025. So what I would call in a very short distance, very um, much in sight, 2025 um, cash flow break-even and the funding need that is needed from today till this break even, a very clear defined uh, amount of 1.3 billion, which you know we want to cover with a mix of debt and equity. So what I would call a very manageable uh, funding need. These two are the key cornerstones of this business plan, which I think everybody would acknowledge is not based on dreamy, fancy, um, production numbers, uh, but but really uh, a very realistic and achievable volume. Thomas, let me jump in and ask you about those production numbers because you've scaled back your 2023 um, production forecast a couple of times already. Now you expect to make 60,000 vehicles in total this year, but you need to get up to, I think, 155,000 um, by 2025. How are you going to make it make that leap from 60 to 155 in the next couple of years? Well, yesterday people were queuing to get a ride along in our Polestar 3 SUV and in the SUV Coupe, the Polestar 4. Both cars are ready to go out. The Polestar 4 actually has production start next week. The Polestar 3 will start production early 2024. So 2024, we will get these two cars in our hands. 25 will be a year where they will be fully in, 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 in customer delivery plus the Poster 5 joining. So three great cars um, in the exclusive yep. segment. So these two, so these, this product lineup, of course, is a big, big uh, reason for our um, increase of volume in this period. Thomas, you, you just called your, your products exclusive. What we've seen today is Richemont, the owner of Cartier, warning that they are seeing a significant consumer slowdown at the upper end. You've got Diageo warning that its premium products 
are starting to hit price resistance. We're seeing it all across the luxury sector at the moment that the consumer is saying, I can't afford that anymore, even the upper end consumer. Are you seeing any evidence of that? Are exclusive EV products going to face the same headwinds that the rest of the luxury sector might be seeing at the moment? I think it's very important to put that in perspective. I think there's no doubt that the long-term success of electrification uh, is given. The only way of CO2 emission reduction is via EVs. Um, transition from combustion engine to EVs is, um, is a clear path forward. Short-term, economic fluctuations. The industry has seen that over decades. I think the real question is how resilient are you as a business to go through those? And I think us having presented this business plan is a clear testimony of Polestar being on the side of the winners to go through those downsides and just simply um, be resilient enough to, to get out as a winner in that. So for that reason, um, I don't think there's any, um, any question about the EV success in the long term. Thomas, you've just um, uh, talked to us about your new business plan that you presented and said you need $1.3 billion. You're very specific about what you need uh, to be cash flow uh, break even in 2025. Um, you need that externally, that funding. Are you in talks with any external investors? What kind of outside investors um, do you want to do you want to hook up with? And, and has anyone expressed interest? Well, look, we were always very um, clear about the openness to attract outside um, investors. Um, our two main shareholders who have been and will be very supportive in, um, in our business, of course, um, will stay with us, but they are very willing for, to have others participating in the ownership of uh, Polestar. And that's how we how we plan ahead. So Volvo and Geely, do you think the other investors, could they come from China? Are you in talks with Chinese, other Chinese investors? No, we are worldwide um, pitching for this. So there's certainly no preference in any regional um, 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 destination where these people should come from. No, we are here obviously um, today um, in the US. We have US production with supposed to restarting. Um, I think that this is well a very clear sign that we are an international business yep. open to international investment. Thomas, you flagged the fact that you have U.S. production. President Biden has, within the last couple of days, signaled his support for the UAW to start targeting businesses like Tesla. He thinks that maybe that's the next, next place that they should be looking. What do you think about your labor? Do you think you could be facing strikes? Do you think you could be facing a union push? Do you think this is going to be something that pulls in the whole of the automotive sector in the United States? Well, not really that much um, a question to ask because we have a very um, simple way of having basically no manufacturing footprint on our own. We have contact manufacturing with our uh, big partners in, in that, obviously, the Volvo factory in Richville. We have um, production together with Geely. And this is where, uh, of course, this question you have now should be targeted. We are very well familiar with um, uni 
with, with factories, with unions. We have obviously in Sweden um, a, a very strong base as well with manufacturing in, in, in Volvo. So I think that's uh, really no question mark from our side onto that. What is the Polestar, you know, the unique selling point? Because, you know, some brands, Porsche is about, you know, uh, speed and sports cars. Mercedes is about kind of luxury and status. Volvo is about, you know, safety and, and family, at least for me. What is Polestar about? Polestar main differentiator clearly is our design focus. It's, it's a brand with um, strongest design, design as advanced as its technology, that's our slogan. And I think yesterday at our poster day, when you see the lineup of the beautiful cars and how innovation is brought to the customer through our design made it really desirable. I mean, that is how we think electrification will succeed. Cars that really make people are passionate about. And what is the greatest driver for passion um, is clearly the, the design aspect of it. So. If you ask us to narrow it down to that one aspect, it's design. Thomas, great to catch up. Really appreciate you joining us from Los Angeles. Thomas Ingolath of Polestar. And of course, our thanks to Bloomberg's Matt Miller. All right. Well, if you were just uh, joining us here, you were just listening to Matt Miller and Guy Johnson. They were interviewing the CEO of Polestar. Um, and Matt, I believe that you've driven a Polestar recently. Can you two. tell us about two? Yeah. So, really? I mean, I drove the Polestar one was, I think, really amazing from a design perspective. Um, it, 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 it checked every box and it was uh, cool in that it was a hybrid and it had um, manually adjustable Olin's suspension. That's something you don't see in cars these days. Two, I don't really, it's not terribly luxurious. It's not over-engineered and it's $50,000 in white. So, it's a concern. Does it have that CarPlay feature that you were asking our good John Tucker about it, earlier? You can use CarPlay, but <laughs> you have to plug it in. So it doesn't have mm -hmm. wireless CarPlay, and it's made in China. So I think they're going to have difficulty selling um, that vehicle in this country. You know, Chinese cars that come in here are subject to a 27.5% tariff. Yeah. Um, so they can't beat anybody on pricing. Um, but it'll be interesting to see the three that'll be built here in the U.S. and South Carolina, as he's saying. Um, the Polestar 4 is going to be built in Korea, um, and then they're going to have another uh, car. So it'll be interesting to see how they do um, with, you know, the Swedish slash Chinese ownership. Yeah. All right. Well, that's something fun to consider going forward. So thanks to you and Guy for talking and for uh, bringing us that interview. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.